Hello, Lion Click Nation. This is Ray DeLucci of the Lion Click Thoughts Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show. My guest today has been on many times. He's probably the most um, visited guest of the Lion Click Thoughts Podcast, and his name is Justin Kana. I am putting links to all of Justin's work, content, everything else, where you can find him in the description of this podcast episode, so please go check it out. And just very, very grateful to have Justin back on the show. We go over a lot of topics today. We go over the uh, maybe possible potential decline of culinary school. We go over uh, new uh, technology concerning Web3 and restaurant reservations. We talk about a, an opinion David Chang had recently on Instagram that uh, we go we do a little deep dive into that. Uh, we talk about the Mr. Beast food issues and much, much more. And I really just enjoyed this conversation with Justin. It was really great to get on the mic and chat with him. As you can tell by the length of this episode, we could probably go for three hours if we really wanted to, uh, but we did end up capping it at an hour and a half. So Justin, just want to say thank you for coming on the show. I know a lot going on uh, with the, you know, many different projects you're working on right now and your personal brand. So just really, really grateful for the time spent with you. And yeah, before we begin, if you are a fan of newsletters and want to receive one from myself concerning stuff in the food industry, go to linecookthoughts.com, put in your email and hit subscribe. This allows you to be a member of the Linecook Thoughts prep list items newsletter. So go to linecookthoughts.com and hit subscribe with your email, input it, and you will get the, the newsletter that will come out every Monday morning. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review, an honest review is all I ask. Helps me get traction, lets me know what you think of the show, and helps me keep pushing the podcast out to more and more new listeners. So, with that being said, we are going into the podcast. Like I said, Justin, thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Ray, we're back. You uh, you called this the Justin Ray Show. This is uh, what the fourth one we've done together so far. It might be yeah, four or five. I think it's four. It, yeah. yeah, we're uh, we're gonna go kind of around the horn. I think is the plan. We have a doc together with some uh, topics that are hospitality, culinary, or restaurant chef related, and I think yeah. we're just gonna bring up the points, talk about you know both potentially differing opinions. I think you and I actually have some opposing thoughts on some of these stories, so that'll make for you know potentially valuable dynamic you know content for for folks who are listening and we're just going to publish these to both of our shows so maybe um for the folks who are hearing this on my show can you maybe introduce your show and then i'll do the same for your listeners before we get into it yeah yeah sounds good um for myself yeah so for myself ray delucci um host of line Cuts podcast freelance writer um work in food manufacturing now but i've been doing this for about five years Justin's been a guest on the show for those of you listening on my end, and I've been on Justin's show a few times. We've collaborated on other podcasts as well, and I'm genuinely like, you know, hey, have hung out before, do some uh, meetings here and there over the phone. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit about me. Cool. And my name is Justin Kana. I uh, was a chef in Michelin Kitchens for almost 10 years. I ran an event production company pre-COVID, and now I run a hospitality education company called 
repertoire, and I have a podcast that kind of goes with that. It's called the Repertoire Podcast. My big kind of flagship product is called Total Station Nomination, and it's basically a specialized culinary program that is just built for people who are working stations in professional kitchens. And so I'm, you know, ambitiously trying to build it as like a more affordable, more practical, more just kind of like cut to the chase version of a culinary school for folks. And so if that's mm-hmm. of interest, you know, um, joinrepertoire.com is a website for that. And I talk about that on the show quite a bit. So let's, I mean, dive into the topics, man. Um, the... I mean, that's a good segue, I think, going into culinary school. Um, totally. We'll leave, we'll leave the link in my description for this episode so people can go. Yeah, mine will forward. also have pretty in-depth show notes for folks. So if you want to see any of these links of what we're talking about, read further. The description of the podcast is, is where you're going to want to go here. So yeah, kick us off, man. Yeah, so Washington Post released on August 30th, 2022, uh, that basically culinary schools are seeing their enrollment go down. And I had re- recently featured this in my newsletter that I put out uh, and basically just really like wondering, I, I've, you know, as a culinary school grad, we both graduated from the Culinary Institute of America, really wondering the future of culinary school. Uh, it seems like a really interesting proposition. And I've talked about this on my podcast for many years, that a lot of people go to, a four, to go get a four-year degree, get into student loan debt, only to be working in kitchens around the line. And I do think that if you're putting yourself in a position where you're getting a bachelor's degree in food business or whatnot, that the goal would be to leave culinary school doing something if you are in debt that's in a position that helps you pay off some of those loans or at least afford to live. And I know like a lot of people uh, from culinary school or just people I know in the industry who struggle with student loan debt um, and the significant impact it has because of the lower wages often attributed to restaurant cooking and restaurant work. So interested to see where it's going. I don't know. I mean, my prediction is that it goes lower, but I also just predict that I, I think there's going to have to either be a reduce in cost or there's going to have to be a failure rate among some of the schools just because of how expensive they are. Um, I don't want to see that, obviously. I, I love my time at the CIA and I think it's a great experience, but it just, I really think there has to be a really great, like, I think everyone in the industry needs better messaging on uh, what you should be doing if you go to a, a school for four years and what kind of job you should be uh, pursuing after that. What was your kind of like biggest benefit that you, I guess, if you had to break it down to like a cost that you would be like, yeah, at at CIA, I conferred this benefit and I definitely would pay for it again. If you had yeah. to like sum up maybe one or two, your top one or two. Yeah, but I mean, I can share my story. I mean, I, I grew up in a lower uh, income family, so I did get a lot of uh, federal aid. I also got a lot of scholarships. I was very lucky in high school to have a teacher who wanted me to go to the CIA. Um, and so his name is Robert Eiley. He helped me get a lot of scholarships before school and in school. Um, I did get scholarships as well. I did some programs to help reduce living costs and whatnot. So for me, leaving school, I mean, I still have student loan debt, but not nearly as much as it would cost. Um, but I still am paying off my student loans uh, to a degree and will be paying them for the next couple of years. So for me, the cost benefit going into it as an 18-year-old was I'm from Buffalo, New York. I really We have a, somewhat of a food scene. So going to the CIA was really beneficial for me because I got exposed to new ideas, d- different types of people from around the world, different cuisine types, and really opened up what food and cooking was for me and the different opportunities. But I didn't really have a great plan when I left the CIA, what I was going to do. I came to the end of my bachelor's degree um, without a job. I didn't have a, a really a, a job at all. I, did, I started working back home in Buffalo. I actually moved back home and after a while, I got and worked for um, a restaurant group called Hillstone. I worked for them as a manager and trainee. 
uh, and then became a culinary manager for them. And that was kind of the, um, the, I guess, logical next step after getting a business degree was to go into a leadership manager position as, as opposed to going to be a cook in a Michelin star restaurant, which I left school and did. I went and staged in Chicago and New York and um, went to a bunch of interviews and wanted to be like a line cook, but then quickly realized that with my student loans, my car bill and everything else, um, and living in these cities, I, there's no way in hell I could have afforded it on my own. Or if I could have, it would have been at a very, very, very uncomfortable lifestyle because I didn't really have anyone. You know, my parents would help me. It would help me out if I like needed food for a day, but there was no way that they're you know going to be like funding my way to live in New York City or Chicago. So I had to take a job that offered more pay and um, more, uh, I guess, growth in a quicker path. So, but the benefit for me, so are you, I, I guess, to answer your yeah, question is. The benefit for me was high because I was able to get out of, you know, mm. not saying that you don't want to get out of Buffalo, but I feel like I left a place that was a little bit smaller of a hometown, got to experience new things, really learned about business development and being in an area where there's so many professionals and so many different outlooks. I think it helped me garner a career path forward that would be very impactful for myself and something I enjoy doing. So that was my, the cost. And I, I do think my personal cost be it lower than some because of scholarships and federal aid helped me out a lot. So, I mean, in line with that, I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's a little bit of a, it's not that it's not worth it. It's that, is it worth the, whatever the statistic is? I think the number right now is like $21,000 per semester. You know, if you're going like no financial aid, no, you know, sort of assistance programs, nothing at a school like CIA, mm -hmm. which again, I graduated with a associate's degree from, I didn't stay on for my bachelor's degree there, but I guess, is there something in your mind where you would, if added on, would justify $21,000 a semester? You know, that's almost, you know, approaching $50,000 a year. You know what I mean? At the, at that point. It's a broader topic and I'll get to answering your question, but I think that's the negative of being 18 and making an impactful decision like that. And that's a broader conversation on college and the age at which we take on debt and stuff. Um, but for myself, I think like you wouldn't even know what to look for at that age. Yeah. Like I really, I mean, going to CIA, I didn't really, I didn't even know what the Michelin guide was. So I think like when I got to CIA, mm. my first like three years were so uncaptured with fine dining because I'd never even heard of this. Yeah, that's all I was really focused on. It wasn't until like my fourth year um, or my final semesters where I was starting to get a grip on what actually I might need to do if I wanted to, you know, have a good career path that paid me um, money that I could live off of and pay my debt off with. So uh, I think for me that, I, I mean, it's like, yeah, maybe we should be a little bit older before we go into debt, but that's obviously a structural societal thing in America. But beyond that, I think that, and I think the CIA is doing a better job of this. And it's not just them. I think all higher culinary education places really should put an emphasis on all of the options out there. Um, and I think that's why I like what the CIA has been doing is they seem to have more of a focus on being a recipe developer or working in food management. And I think, you know, I think while they're doing a good job, I think even more so that stressing that there's so many different facets to the food industry. And I don't think that everyone who goes and gets a college degree um, or like, if, like you, for example, if you're going for an associate's degree, that's a solid degree and that will let you, um, you know, do a lot of things. And if you get a bachelor's degree, I think that, you know, that's good for business. It might be good for your overall personal development, but I think it's a base by case basis where, um, case by case basis where people are like, you need to like be realistic with your financial situation and what it costs. Like if you're going into a lot of debt, then on the back end, there has to be a job for you that 
helps pay that off if you're interested in not being in debt. So I think that's the biggest thing for me. So the, the just uh, just keeping the education of like, if you were taking a bachelor's course and you're getting out with a lot of debt, then you these are probably the better paths for you to have a more um, successful time and repaying and living a financially viable life. If you're going to college on a free ride or your parents are paying for it and there's not a lot of like risk or cost, then you kind of have the open um, opportunity to do whatever. So I think it is case by case, but I think being realistic on a student's level, especially really granular with them is, I think, important and being realistic with that as well. So. Yeah, I come back on this story, particularly to uh, something I'm behind on doing because there's been a lot of personal stuff in my life uh, is my season two breakdown of the bear that I've been, you know, just like waiting to to get started and, and, and produce on YouTube, um, you know happy to go into to, to the whys of that if, if it would be interesting for the audience. But um, if if you recall, they send two of the team members to culinary school in that show. And I think what's so interesting, and I'd be curious to hear your take on, you know, what transpired in the show and how it relates to this specific article and why the rates of enrollment are declining is like, what do you like what I remember seeing in that show being portrayed on screen of what and why these people are going to culinary school was so fuzzy and nebulous. Like these two team members get sent to this institution and what do they get? They get the 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 crisp sh- set of chef whites, the perfectly like stainless steel kitchen to use this knife kit that they get handed to like practice chopping celery. Like like that's literally a scene in the show of like, you know, practicing your knife skills. And to me it's like there's there's such a mismatch there between what the characters are doing on a day to day, which is genuinely like prepping for service, you know, like following recipes, you know, meeting pars for their stations, you know, like going through making sure that like dish development is happening with these new chefs of Carmen and Sydney that are, you know, as part of the show. And, you know, not to 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 make the bear as like all kitchens are like this, but I think that it does serve as a very, you know, kind of like interesting they got so many things right in the show from a, like people look at that, the, how they portray things. And they're like, yeah, that's accurate. But you look at the culinary school experience and, you know, she basically comes back to the restaurant, Tina, I think. And, and she is a sous chef, you know, all of a sudden. And it's like, okay, now you're going to run service. And there's no documentation or reflection of, okay, she learned how to manage service or expedite or, you know, like check quality standards or keep her head level during stressful situations during culinary school. That didn't happen, or at least they didn't show it. And 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 that's where I think people get stuck with this, where they, they see the price tag, they see what am I going to be learning, and then combine that with like what you and I are doing right now. Like the person who's listening to this or watching this didn't pay a cent for this. And I think there's so many other things that, you know, you, you, have these people who go to culinary school and they're faced with the same, you know, problems that you and I are faced with. I remember like looking at certain offer letters that I was getting from restaurants and it's like eight twenty five an hour, you know, and it, you're just like, holy shit, you know, like how in the world and, and you're living in a big city and it's like, how in the world am I going to, you know, make this work? And so they, 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 in this day and age, in 2023, they look at their phones and they say, well, I could just like make a TikTok and I could, you know, make what I know, which is what I learned in culinary school. And so you have this funny paradox now where, Everything you could basically learn in culinary school is being put out there on the internet for free. And so it's like, compare that to spending $50,000 a year, uh, getting your parents to, to, to help you out, going into debt, uh, giving up two years of no income. That's like a huge thing that I don't hear that much people talking about. I, you know, was in, I, I got a job in the dining hall at CIA. I don't know if you had a job when you were working at CIA, but like I, I, I wanted, you know, income to, to help kickstart that process. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's like totally, totally. And so it's like that was, uh, and now and I was staging in kitchens on the weekends, you know, like when everybody else was was partying or playing video games. And so it's it, it's this funny thing where the in, is it an informational gap? You know what I mean? Like, is that do are people going to an institutionalized culinary school for information? Um, are you getting networking benefits? Are you getting the, I call it like the Roger Bannister effect where you're just seeing what's possible for those that don't know. Roger Bannister is the guy who like broke the four minute mile. And after he did it, everybody else did it. And I think that's a fascinating, just like cognitive reframe for people is like, if you go into these professional kitchens and you see what it's like to make, you know, 50 gallons of chicken stock, or, you know, you had to butcher 12 chickens that day and you see other people doing it and you're just surrounded by other people where it kind of unlocks your potential. Sure. Is that worth 50? Like, how do you put a price tag on that? You know, like that, that is interesting to me, but I'm using that bear analogy only because it's like, these are people who their job was to accurately portray what happens in the industry. And they couldn't come up with any sort of compelling, you know what I mean? Like reason for these people to go to a culinary school, even though they had the restaurant experience that, that, you know, is there and, and I'm biased, right? So I am basically focused on how can I do everything that you would basically need to do even twisted, right? So like the anecdote that I share is like, there's no recipes taught in total station nomination because in a, the way that my mind works is, is after so many years of industry experience, I'm looking at this, like, why would I teach you how to make hollandaise sauce? Because the recipe that I teach you is probably going to be different than the one that the chef that you're going to potentially go work for is going to use. And so what I would much rather teach is communication, setup, how to tackle tasks, how to move through a kitchen. Like those are things that you can carry with you from job to job to job so that you don't end up being the person that is like the meme, which is the, this is how I did it at my last job, you know, that all of us make fun of. And it's like, what is the stuff that goes with you from kitchen to kitchen? That's what I teach. And 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 the reality is like, you're going to get handed a recipe sheet. You're going to get shown the technique of how they make, you know, the beet puree at whatever restaurant you start working at. And so is the value in the recipes and the information or is it in the kind of like the ability to, to, you know, really be a professional? Um, and can, can you develop those skills going into the industry and almost do this thing in tandem where you can get the experience faster? Cause I think you and I, Ray would both agree that there's like, there's a certain level of the doing the work just needs doing like there, there's only so much theory that that can substitute for practice and you can read about you know you can read all the michael rollman books you want but it's like being on the line when you know you you genuinely have like tickets coming in or or, or there's a buyout and 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 the the prep list that you have is is crazy and the person that was your station partner called out like there's only so much there or even to your to your work right now is like the recipe development front of genuinely taking something from zero to one you that the rubber only hits the road when you start doing that in a practical sense more more so than you know this is like an essay that you have to write or this is like something that you're doing in the protection and the shelter of a classroom environment where you know the worst thing that's going to happen to you is that you're going to get asked to do to do it again or you're going to get a bad grade that you can probably make up for later in the semester so you know opened a lot of threads there curious if if anything resonated yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people get get caught in the start in kitchens, and I definitely was like this. And even and I had a degree is oh, I've only worked in kitchens, like that's all I'm good at. And I think, and I've I know I've done a lot of content on this, but even as I've I've left kitchens in 2020, and I've been in different roles within food manufacturing and whatnot. But you'd be surprised at like how many people without culinary degrees, with just kitchen experience, get into different sectors of the industry, different roles. Like it truly is. We're we're I feel like we're blessed in a way 
that the industry can be so dynamic and so um, fluid with what you do. So yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's all about goals and it's all about like what you foresee for your future. Um, for me, I think the biggest draw, and I, I, I came to this realization like two years after I left school is the biggest thing for me, like you mentioned there, was my connections. My friend group, the people I could learn, like I've met, they've opened up a lot of opportunities, opened a lot of doors, uh, mentors, people at the school, people that I've met through the school, opportunities I've had. Um, you know, the opportunity to go to a career fair and meet a company that moves me to New York City, that moves me to Houston, that moves me to Chicago, and meet people out here. And then, like, it just keeps going. And so, yeah, of course. And, of course, I know that, you know, having a CIA degree can be meaningful for some, but for other chefs, it's not meaningful. It's actually like a uh, kind of a mark on who you are as a person for some people, which I understand the stigma. But, um, yeah, I think that at the end of the day, that – Culinary school isn't necessarily needed. I think that's what this is. I mean, I think everyone in the industry knows this. Um, I do find, though, that it's interesting that enrollment is dropping. And I think we've seen a lot of um, people in the industry having to find work or forge on their own. And, yeah, I just think it's hard for me to see. Like, I think that the, from growing up, you know, college was always something that at least my family wanted me to go to. But as we've gotten into 2020s, I feel like that. Um, you know, that aspiration is less and less where it's like, yeah, college is still important for a lot of people, but not as much. And there's a lot of employers that are flex hiring on people that have don't have a college degrees, but actually have the real world environment. So I do think that culinary schools are going to struggle to kind of put a, a bow on what we're, like, I guess, the original topic. I do think they're going to struggle. I do think they will see some drop in enrollment. Um, I'm very interested to see what they do. I, obviously, CIA is like at the forefront of it. So I think like those premier schools would do well. And I do think the, the vocational schools will do well, but anything in between that's not really local and affordable or isn't high, higher prestige will kind of fall out. So um, I just think that's the reality of what's, I mean, you're kind of seeing that with a lot of like, I don't want to say mid tier, but like, you know, some schools that aren't as prestigious as the CIA or not as like truly affordable as a community college where you could potentially get in for free. So I guess where where my head keeps coming back to, and again, stating my bias here is the rejection just because there's a high price tag and a big time investment and potentially like skills you can find elsewhere, you know, uh, uh, being transferred in in a culinary school experience. There's this kind of attitude that okay, getting an education, formalizing how I'm going to start off my career and build a foundation, uh, oh poo poo to that. You know, like th- there's this, you know, anti-education or anti-training maybe is maybe the way to, or anti just like building the ground floor of who you are as, as a beginner in this industry. There's a pushback to that, that I am again, biased against because what I don't like seeing is people that push that away and then simultaneously complain that, you know, like, oh my goodness, I'm just thrust into this kitchen and I'm just getting screamed at all day. And, you know, it's not to say that, 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 uh, la- lack of performance is justifying, you know, the the temper tantrums that you'll see in kitchen sometimes. But that's what that's the bridge that I want to, you know, uh, that's the gap that I want to bridge is how can we make sure that people are actually getting supported? Because individual restaurants, the on- I mean, you've worked in them, Ray. Like the onboarding process is often like, hey, uh, cool, you're you're starting today, got it. You know, like go go into dry storage and and put this apron on. You know, like that's that's all the training you got. You know, like you're gonna get thrust on the station and you're just gonna start. And you compare that to you know any other industry, 
where you maybe have like a week's worth of training, two weeks worth of training, three months worth of, you know, like shadowing somebody to kind of like get a sense of what your role and your job is going to be. And how much of that contributes to a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the industry where like, oh my goodness, I have no experience and I just started at this restaurant. I just got thrust into this chaos and oh my God, I'm feeling burnout all of a sudden. And it's like, how can that, how can education not through this, you know, very large institutionalized framework help the industry? That's what I focus and spend my time thinking about because that's what I want to see more of. Like, I want to see more people joining into the industry that are excited about food. Um, my focus is on restaurants because that's my background. Like, that's what I know. But I think, to your point, it's like you can get a lot of this experience just day to day, and and it, and it doesn't need to to cause you all this angst and time debt and and financial debt. Um, so, if you don't have any closing thoughts on uh, on on that, I that was your that was your one. If you're cool with me moving us on, I can do one of mine. Unless you had it. Okay, cool. So. Uh, for those that don't know, the Michelin Guide has added a new city to their kind of roster here in the U.S. Denver, Colorado is that is that specific city. And this was the first time that I actually did some actual like digging into what has been happening with Michelin going to different cities. So for context, I'm based in Seattle. I, I was actually talking to a friend who owns a fine dining restaurant here in Seattle. I won't name his name, um, but he specifically told me that there is somebody in the city of Seattle, this is like all hearsay, so I'm not you know, trying to point fingers or start any sort of rumors, but that someone in Seattle is a little bit pushing back on the Michelin Guide coming to the city. Don't know why, don't know if it's a, if it's a financial thing or if it's a status thing or if it's a, a signaling mechanism that like, oh, we don't want that hoity-toity stuff coming to you know, this, this you know, hipster you know, Pacific Northwest uh, town, but for those that haven't been keeping up with cities like uh, states like California bringing the Michelin Guide to the city, the way that it actually works is there's a tourism department that almost always writes a check to Michelin because for those that, again, don't know, Michelin is actually one of the companies that prides themselves on having anonymous inspectors that go to restaurants for multiple visits before they have any sort of evaluation that happens. They also have incredible continuity with restaurants where you will see this with like Miami or DC or now Denver getting a guide where the first year that, you know, guides come out, you often don't see two stars and three stars come out. This is like the old school way that they used to do it in France where in the UK where you couldn't actually get three stars coming out of the gate. Like you had to start with one star, even if you were technically executing at a three star level and then they would visit you again and then they would bestow upon you the second star. And then if you kept it up the third year, then you would, you know, get that third star. I think one of the only stories where that was not the case was I think Alinea opened with three stars right out of the gate, which is like a crazy, you know, phenom outlier story. And so as I was looking into the numbers, the the thing that's quoted in the article that I both sent to you, Ray, and that'll be linked up in the show notes here, is that it was something around six hundred thousand dollars from the tourism board of California to get the guide to come to the 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 whole state and this expanded it from just being in the bay area and the napa area to expanding it down to la to sacramento to you know other areas of california and so with this denver story i thought what was interesting with it was that i'm going to read this quote to get the guide his agency the person that they cite here from colorado agreed to to contribute one hundred thousand dollars a year for three years so that's a three hundred thousand dollar investment Following suit were four tourism boards, so from Denver Tourism Board, Boulder, Aspen, Vail, and two resort companies named Snowmass and Beaver Creek, and they told the New York Times that they each paid Michelin $70,000 to $100,000 to get the guide to come to 
quote unquote Denver, like as an area, and it's going to obviously expand to those other areas. So what we're looking at here is like over half a million dollars, basically, you know, going towards this, you know, expansion of this highly prestigious, you know, bestowing accolades and awards to restaurants that in this first year, no one has gotten, and correct me if I'm wrong here, more than one star uh, uh, that, that, that has been awarded. And so where my head goes is like net net for Denver, Colorado, like the tourism boards in general, half a million dollar investment to have the flights and the hotels and the shopping on main street and the, you know, by, you know, going out and, and having cocktails or, you know, like doing the, the, the skiing and the, the, the outdoorsy activities I would say net net, this is probably like an incredible ROI investment for them for, you know, you, you, you filter for a very specific type of avatar when you're talking about Michelin rated restaurants, right? Like it's the people who want the tasting menus. It's the people who will drop $300 on a bottle of wine. It's the people who want the, you know, like table side experiences and they want to stay at the, 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 all the, the, the very, you know, posh resorts. And so to me, it's like, that this actually maybe makes a lot of sense. And I was actually surprised that the number was what it was, especially with these, you know, uh, tourism boards being able to split up the money, you know, uh, we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars each year. Uh, you know, that, that, that's less than $10,000 a month for a lot of these places. And net net is the, is the, is the state or the city getting more than $10,000 a month. I would argue probably. And so I'm I'm so curious like what your thoughts were when you saw these numbers. Do you think that it was high? Do you think that like it, we'll see this more often and and having it be so kind of like under the table but also you know reported in this way was was interesting to me. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. I would say that like price-wise, I mean obviously it's high, but what is that what is that to a tourism board, you know? Like I mean, I'm sure they fit fit it into their budget. I'm sure they're not like you know, I'm I'm sure it's a big cost for them, but it's not something that's going to like put them out of business. I think for me, there's an interesting article because I did some uh, research on this. I wish there was like stats on like what Michelin, how it affects the city. Um, right. I know, um, like I, I saw old like 2017 Food and Wine article where uh, Joel Rubichon said that like they said two stars increased their revenue by twenty percent. Um, mm. But I found this, and I'll link this this article on Eater. Um, it's by Nikki Bailey, published April 6, 2023. What effect does Michelin have on a city's dining scene? Six months after Michelin bestowed its first ever stars upon Vancouver, uh, the local restaurant scene is readjusting. And uh, one of the <laughs> said one of the Vancouver chefs in there was quoted after the guy came out. I saw a place in the recommended list charging thirty six dollars for a cacio e pepe. Um, so I say that to say that like. I don't know that necessarily, I mean, the number really doesn't shock me. I know Michelin probably has a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of money. And I think what it tells me is that, you know, for, I think a lot of diners perceptions is that Michelin goes where good food is, but mm. is also a back layer, which I don't think is, is known. And like, I think I started learning this in the last few years that like, you, you actually have to kind of coax Michelin to come in and there has to be obviously financial incentive. But if you, they're supposed to be the, the purest of fine dining, then uh, they, shouldn't they just go there without right. warrant? Like if, right, if food right. is really good in a region, like shouldn't they just be going there without like having to be bought in or like given money to it? And so, and I'm sure there's like, I'm sure like, obviously it's not for every city, but it's weird for me that you're like offering a thing like Michelin to come rate food when like their job should be to rate high level food, but I get that's how business works. I think what's interesting for me though, is I would love to see kind of the, 
financial impact or the or the um, just the hell of a business that has been Michelin rated versus Michelin recommended. Like this spot, like the spots that are recommended, like this spot charging thirty thirty six dollars for Cacio Pepe, um, uh, like requiring thirty days notice re- reservation. You're recommended, but you don't have any status, right? So like if a two star restaurant goes from two to one, there's a perceived drop in value. But if you're Michelin recommended, like if you lost that recommendation the last year, would people even know? And what sure. like and do people really understand how recommendations work? So if you get recommended in twenty twenty two, it's like, oh, Michelin recommended this place, like we can go eat out at them. And I don't think that holds the same weight. So it almost for me seems better to be Michelin recommended than Michelin rated from a business standpoint because you don't really have to focus on losing a star and you can also just say hey we were in 2022 recommended by michelin and does the public know that if you're not being rated that falling off of a recommendation really means anything so price doesn't really yeah it's a lot i mean i'd love to hear your thoughts on it but more so as i was doing research into this i kind of like it's just interesting to see like the the stress it puts on restaurants and on staff, but also like how I don't even know that stars are like the biggest thing you'd want unless you're like an Alinea or a restaurant that's truly going for three or two. Like it feels almost makes more sense to just be recommended and go off Michelin's name and make more money. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. A couple, couple threads here. So I think that the, the very real conversation that I think like my wife and I just end of one example here will, will sometimes have is like, if we have time off or a vacation that we're planning, I mean, for us, just like my wife and I eating out is our hobby, like like going and having food experiences is what we genuinely like enjoy doing. It's not it's not going and seeing the sites. It's not, you know, like wandering around museums. It's not like going to architect ar- ar- archaeological sites. It is food and wine, you know, and so having that conversation of should we go to Whistler or should we go to Colorado? that might actually, you know, like change depending on whether or not the caliber of the restaurant or if there's, you know, like this place that's hella hyped or if like a new chef came to the city and is now like helming this this restaurant because they have a star now, does that actually change our behavior? Like that's what the tourism board, you know, like in in a in a weird convoluted way, they don't probably have a way to track it, but like they're genuinely trying to get more of that behavior to to happen. More people choosing Denver over insert other city. And What's fascinating to me is the like chicken and egg problem that you kind of like touched on with the execution that happens at some of these places where my rant that I go on and I, apologies if people have heard this before for me is like in Seattle specifically, there's no Michelin guide. And so if you're really firing on all cylinders, it's like you're going to get your James Beard. You're probably going to get your Bon Appetit and food and wine recognition. And then what is going to happen after that? Right. Like you're going to get your, you know, like right up in the Seattle Times, like like compare that to like if you're going to spend all these hours and all this effort and all this kind of like manpower in pursuit of execution of high caliber cuisine. It's like, wouldn't you rather be in a San Francisco or New York or Chicago where you can at least get. Michelin stars to kind of like accompany the the stuff that you've been doing. And so that to me is why there isn't execution that you'll often see in some of the bigger cities in some of the smaller cities, because we are, you know, like accolade driven, you know, like positive reinforcement, you know, creatures. We want that reward. And I don't think that that's a bad thing to to want to strive for that. And, and that's ultimately like how you attract talent is that like you want you and I just admitted like when we graduated from culinary school, we wanted to go to Michelin kitchens. And so it's like, 
am I surprised that they're, I, I've kind of become desensitized. I will admit, like when I first started to see the guides coming out in like DC and then Miami got it and then Vancouver got it, I was like, similar to what you said, it's like, shouldn't Michelin be going to these places that actually have the guides uh, or have the execution that warrants giving stars? But again, as we've seen this repeat over and over and over again, it's like, it's almost like the guide has to come first. And then there is a bar that is set by the guide. And then it becomes useful for the person who's running the culinary program at a hotel in Denver to say, okay, now there is actually a potential reward at this finish line that I could get that phone call from Michelin that says, you guys got two stars. And what would happen if we were to be able to increase our prices? We would be able to buy better, you know, China. We would be able to invest in a, in a, in a bigger wine cellar. We would be able to hire, you know, more capable people and get, you know, higher quality product to put on the menu. And then it starts to flywheel on itself because now you have the resources and you have the drive and you have the goals to ultimately push you to, to have that. And then that helps the whole city, right? Like we look at what Renee did with Copenhagen, you know, like for all the, you know, stuff that people talk about negatively with Renee right now, I think that what he did to Copenhagen as a city of, you know, driving the culinary scene of that place forward cannot, you know, like be understated. The, 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 the restaurants that came after Noma, is just like the, it's a pantheon of, of places. And so that's also where my head goes. And then the third, uh, you know, piece here is like, when will it get to a point when Michelin, like, I guess I want to just take a step back here and just acknowledge how Michelin as a business, the guide specifically works because everybody points to like, oh, it's pay to play now pointing fingers at the, you know, oh, it's a six figure investment, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, how else do you want Michelin to make their money? Is it like through media projects? Is it through selling physical copies of books? Because nobody's making money on selling physical copies of books anymore, right? Like even the best authors in the world, like they are getting book deals based on the size of their online following. And so it's like, we can have this thing where Michelin becomes like this clickbaity, you know, like online content, driving ads to their website and having a social media presence. But then it's like, then they become just as convoluted and corrupt as like World's 50 Best, if we're going to talk about that. Because then all of a sudden, we know who the inspectors are. We know how to treat them differently when they come to the places. We know that they're how many times they dined and if they didn't dine multiple times and when they dined and, and oh my goodness, it was an off night. And so to me, it's like, is this one of the more pure quote unquote ways, you know, like it's, it's the same people who would say, oh, well, we, I just think that the, you know, X, Y, Z people should come in and, and pay for it. And it's like, you're getting that with this situation. Like the tourism board is paying for it. You're not having the restaurants like pay to play. Like the restaurants are actually benefiting a lot from a business perspective. And consequentially, like a lot of other businesses in that city are also benefiting. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm so curious, like and I've changed my mind on this, like, like fully, I, I, I wanted to hate and push back and be like, oh my God, this is pay to play. But as you start to unpack it a little bit, you're like, how else would you want this to work from, from Michelin's perspective where Michelin can continue to do what it does and the tourism boards pay for it, which also helps local businesses. Like there's so much good underneath it. If you just reframe this in a different way, but I think people look at the dollar amount and they just immediately want to ascribe this negative connotation to it. Um, so that, that's where I get frustrated. I definitely, and that's a good point. And I think for myself, like saying earlier, like for me, them going to a place, like obviously restaurants shouldn't be paying for a guide to come. Having a tourist board pay makes sense. Obviously that's how they run their business. 
I think I've been pretty vocal on the podcast though that like I mean Michelin for me isn't something that I really like see is like I'm not really interested in it too much and I know I've shared that a lot um and I don't know that I necessarily think it should perhaps go away but I still see so much wrong with like how Michelin operates um and, and I do see the good and the benefit like you said with Renee in Copenhagen um, with these businesses that get recommended getting um more you know more business and it's up to those operators to decide if they pay their staff more or give better hours or kind of what that is I would love to see data though on the and I don't know if it exists and I think I, as we're talking I do this and I'd love to like do an episode on it if I can find data is a how much does the price of food in general in a city go up when Michelin comes in you know because I think a lot of people in the you know I think I think about like the line cook that's doing all this that loves to go out to eat that loves to go explore that can't really afford to probably go to many of these restaurants so what is you know michelin is something that it's a guide for the elite it's a guide for for people that love the highest of fine dining but a majority of people can't even afford to go to these restaurants and i would love to see the data on what does michelin do to an overall city's food scene and the affordability of that scene you know charging 36 dollars for a plate of pasta um, you know, do stuff like that, and of course, food needs a cost more. I'm not saying that it shouldn't. Like we, like consumers should realize the cost of food, but is it almost pricing out or making it unaffordable for a lot more people to eat at restaurants, to go out to eat and have nice um, establishments? Like you know, I look at a city like Buffalo, where you can go out and get a, a meal that I would say rivals a lot of different big cities. You're not going to find an Alinea in Buffalo per se, but you can find a lot of really, really incredible food. Um, spots for a lot cheaper of a price just because michelin isn't there um so i I would love to see that data on affordability of dining and eating out i would love to see the impact of um michelin restaurants once they lose a star or what the um kind of just the overall sales you know revenue is for a a a a restaurant that's like at a one star and that hasn't gone two stars and i would love to compare that to a recommended restaurant What's the revenue been? What's the profit been? And what's the overall success been? Because I would say if you're losing a star, I would almost, like like I said in the beginning, I would rather have a recommended restaurant than a restaurant that goes from two to one star because I feel like you're just the perceived negativity of it. So that's kind of what I'd like to see. You do make a good point. Obviously, Michelin has to make money. And my only counterpoint to that is I really, you know, for me, Michelin is like a, it's, I guess it's like, it's been cool to have, but as I've gone further and further in my career and seen, what it is, I mean, it, it really is just like a small segment of the industry, but we, we make it such a big deal, obviously, because so many people are pursuing it, and I respect the hell out of that. But at the end of the day, like, it still needs to be done in a way that is that is meaningful and in a way that supports labor and supports the people cooking within those premises and not just one person at the head of a business. So if people are conducting themselves in great ways, then obviously Michelin can be a good thing, but I don't think that all kitchens like are there yet. So Yeah. Uh, I'll kick it back to you. Um to you can pick your next story here you have more you have more topics than i do so so you you take your pick here yeah and <laughs> let's go to david chang um so david i've i've listened to J- david chang's podcast off and on um i don't want to say i've had a love hate relationship with david chang um i find i, I want to start by saying like, i find his personality interesting and like and his personality of like how he acts but just the personality that is david chang i think that he's someone who came up, he was a cook's cook. He was someone that, you know, did really exciting food with Momofuku. He's, and then he turned operator and entrepreneur, and he's a very smart businessman. I mean, TV shows, podcasts, Momofuku, like noodles and stores, Momofuku soy sauce. 
the people, the entrepreneurs that have come from him, you know, the people that have worked with David Chang and then come from him. I think that he's had a lot of positive on the industry. Uh, so I know there's like the been the negatives, like, you know, I think he's flat out said, like, you know, he's been a jerk. He's been a ass in restaurants and, you know, there's been pieces on his, you know, poor management of people of how he's worked with people. Um, and so I think there's like a love hate with kind of the, the success someone from cooking has had, but also like, what did you do to get there and whatnot? But all that to say, he had an interesting IG reel off of his podcast and I can share a link to this, but he went over this rant saying that he like hates seeing that like everything in restaurants is house made. Like he didn't. And I sent this over to you and I, I don't know if you saw that. This I did. Is, I sent yeah, it to I you as a real. Yeah, I watched it. But did you did you see that? So I sent it to you as I made this. So did you know that I was going to bring this up on the podcast when you watched it? Or did you think I was sending it to you as a funny real? Uh, I think the so, timing just coincided where I was like, oh, you know, you don't send me that many reels. I think you and yeah, I like comment okay. on each other's stuff on yeah. Instagram and we'll text each other. But it's like we don't really DM that much. So I was like, oh, Ray's yeah. probably going to want to talk about this. So I did like watch it all the way through and try to process it a little bit before you brought it up here. Well, it was sent to me by a friend, Cole Bailey, who you, I think you might remember. Yeah. He was been yeah. on the podcast. He's been club, like, we do a lot in clubhouse and stuff. I still talk to him like every day. Um, but he, he sent it to me and, it, and we were talk, talking about it. And it's just such a weird thing for me. So like I said, Dave Chang reframing it. He's hating on like people saying they have house mint ketchup or whatever. And I just find it interesting. I thought, I thought it was a very interesting thing because, you know, Dave Chang is a celebrity who has, all these different, uh, you know, brands, all these different shows, like 18 Netflix shows and podcasts and a CPG brand and all these different things. And he's like hating on this trend of housemade food. And like, I get it was a joke and whatnot, but like, it was just so odd because he's someone that is, like I said, like he's someone who's built his career, like through, you know, making his own stuff or like doing things in a certain way. And it's so weird to have like a, a prominent chef, like saying that, he hates going out to, and seeing like restaurants make their own food and saying that it's homemade. And it's like, if you're making your stuff homemade, I feel like you should be credit, credited and the staff should be credited. And like, there's it's interesting if you go in the comments to this post, because there's some people that are like, you know, with him and agreeing with him, but there's a lot of people saying, if we make it house made, why wouldn't we say that? Or if we did something in house, why wouldn't we share that? I just thought it was a really bad take. And I don't think it's like an offensive take. I don't think it's a take where it's like, you like, he should lose it. Like, you know, it's nothing like serious, right? but it was just so odd. It just was such an odd take. Mm. But then I'm like, is this where we're at in 2023 where housemaids not a tr like in vogue? Like, so I just wanted your thoughts. It doesn't have to be a deep conversation. It's it nothing that's like crazy big on my end, but it was just odd. It was really like, it just struck me as really weird to hear David Chang say that. Yeah. So fascinating to, I mean, I also had conflicting feelings as I was seeing it. So just to steel man, David Chang's argument here for a second is that he is saying effectively that when you sit down and you're getting told that, you know, oh my goodness, the, you're looking at the menu and you're seeing the frites with, you know, house made ketchup on the menu and you get this ketchup and it's like, you know, maybe it's broken. Maybe there's not enough acidity to it. Maybe they didn't add any sort of like sweetener or like it's not salty, like it's not seasoned. And basically what he's saying is the house made label does not patch over or serve as a band-aid for poor flavor, poor execution, just because you made the bread in house. If the crumb is bad or you didn't bake it long enough or, you know, like there's not enough like yeastiness to the, you know, sourdough that, that, that you're enjoying does it matter that it was housemade? Like, does that, you know, serve as an apology or it just kind of like elevates it to the status where, yeah, it wasn't that good, but like, oh my God, they made it in house. 
and that's that's effectively what his argument is saying. And I think the the closest analog that I could draw a similarity to here was the same thing that happened when organic stuff started to become like this label that all of a sudden conferred or signaled status or 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 quality. Uh, and and what I thought was so interesting about that was that quickly, like you look at the if we were to chart it out of like people's perception of the word organic, either whether it's on menus or their behavior when they're shopping at grocery stores or how they decide to choose a restaurant to go eat at all of a sudden just like tanked when people realize that like, oh, it's actually not that hard to get the organic label on my product or the practices that I have to do to make this thing don't actually have to result in a more flavorful, better texture, you know, more vibrant color, like anything that we can perceive in our five senses as we enjoy something. And so organics brand, quote unquote, I'll call it just tanked because people's, you know, like you want to have that reliability of if it says house-made bucatini, or if it's, we have this really high quality, like from Italy, you know, like pasta that is like extruded and, 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 and it's, you know, cut with bronze, whatever, like the, the, the marketing that goes along with any of these things that we were to, you know, like label to again, confer information. Like that's all it is when you're, when you're saying, oh, well, um, I think us, you and me, Ray, like when we when we think about things that are house made, it's like the antithesis of that, like the other side of that spectrum is it arrived in a bag frozen and you cut it open and you poured it into like a pot and heated it up and served it. You know, like there was no human involvement from the chef to, to sort of make this better. It is a commodity. Anybody can order this and serve this exact same product. But I think that, yeah, like th that's that's ultimately where I come to is like house made is in a lot of ways like the brand of it has gone down because i think a lot of people have used it as a band-aid or a crutch to basically say oh well yeah it's not really that tasty but like we made it in house like like are you going to applaud me and that's where i evaluate food from right it's like that's my you know memeable thing is like flavor and execution that's all i think about and and notice in there is like there's nothing from the sense of like how much did it cost or like who made it in fact, I actually did a whole rant on a mini episode of my podcast where I say don't make it in-house because I think that this fallacy that like all of the prep, all of the 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 burden of making the bread, making the condiments, making the pastry twill garnishes, making the preserves that you're using, making the butter in-house should all be on the shoulders of the restaurant. It's like what type of again, stress and workload pressure does that put on the team of the restaurant? And so my argument in that piece was can we actually have a potential proliferation of more food businesses where you have the guy who is just like, I love making pasta. Like I make some of the best extruded pastas. I do stuffed ones too. If you want to make a wholesale order to your restaurant, I can be a trusted purveyor partner for you. I will do what I do best. And then you guys can do what you do best, which is the service, the execution, the front of house, you know, attention to detail, the plateware, the printing the menus, the having the reservation platform. Like there's so much that goes into managing a restaurant actually having to worry about feeding the sourdough starter just so that you can say you make the sourdough in-house versus outsourcing it and having a trusted baker who, you know, can also, again, small business, like help them out. I think that there's such a bigger benefit to not having that sense of pride. And so what I, the, the, the punchline at the end of that episode was like, I actually want to applaud when I see people like not making it in house, right? Like I don't want it to be seen as this thing where we poo poo it and we say like, oh, well, you didn't make this bread in house. Like 
what does that mean like your team is not capable does that mean that like it, it's gonna suck like does that mean that you're kind of like you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes and you're trying to charge you know $16 for a side of bread and butter when you only paid $2 for it because you bought it from Cisco you know like all of these sorts of questions come into the mind of the consumer but I think we've gotten to this place where things have ballooned from a workload perspective on restaurants where it's like it's no wonder people are fucking exhausted is because they're having to make everything in-house and it doesn't actually result in a better quality experience for the for the consumer so that's that's where, where my head goes definitely i want to read something to you and i, I want Please. you i just want your reaction Please. to this yeah, and yeah. i want all right so if you're used to grocery store soy sauce you've never had anything like this our restaurant grade version is steeped with kombu to unlock a world of depth and flavor it's built on 10 years of flavor research from our team or from the blank team and we make, we're making it available to home cooks for the first time that, That's the Momofuku soy, soy sauce, sauce. Yep. bottle. And if you look at the bottle of the soy sauce, it's a bottle that is has a printed on, I don't know if you can see. Yeah, it's like a piece a of printed tape. printed on piece of tape that's not cut uniquely as if it was made in the restaurant right. and bottled in the restaurant. Right. So it's just, it's, it was just a weird take because he literally, his CPG brand soy sauce is literally mimicking as if it was bottled yeah, and yeah, made. Yeah. In the Momofuku restaurants, which it's not, of course, but it just, it it was so odd. It was just a weird, and I get it's a weird take. Everyone's entitled to have their bad takes. And like I said, like, not the biggest David Chang fan, especially after like, you know, hearing some of the stuff about workplace environment and stuff like that. Do think that he's a really great creative entrepreneur. Do think he's, you know, done a lot of good things for the industry and he's had all these people come on. Um, but it's just a weird, interesting take because I did, I, I was, you know, I, not saying I'm not a fan of his podcast, but I, have, I don't really, I don't listen to it at all, to be honest. Right. And I used to listen to it, but just like these really odd takes. And that was one of them. Um, and like I said, I don't know. No, I'll, I'll, I'll say one other line that I think was interesting in that reel that I think was another kind of like stamp of, you know, what he's actually saying again to try to, you know, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're dunking on, on David Chang right now, but I, I think I want to make sure that we're like giving the, the argument or the take it's, it's, it's due is that basically the punchline that they arrived at was like, it should be something where you experience something, aka the bread or the pasta or the ketchup, and you're like, oh my God, this is really good. I've never had anything like this before. And then you ask the server, and then they say, oh yeah, we make that in-house. And 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 that's really kind of like what you want to arrive at. And and I think that that's maybe what you're seeing with like the soy sauce that they're specifically making, where it's like, there is an attention to detail. There is a, a bit of augmentation that's happening to make sure that this is not just taking Kikoman, putting it in a Momofuku bottle and slapping like some clever branding on it and being like, look guys, this is what we use. And you know, this is also coming from like, I have purchased Momofuku products before. I was like one of the first, like really janky packaging of the salt package that they, you know, came up with, which is basically like, again, to similar to what we're, we're ranting about here, which is this is the seasonings that we use in the restaurant for like when our chicken comes out of the fryer, we use tingly salt, we use savory salt, or we use spicy salt on these items, whether it's salads or, you know, fried items or whatever. And that was literally just spices and salt that were like, there was nothing about how it was sourced. There was all how we blend it, what the blend specifically is. This is the blend that we use in the restaurant. And I think that's the important thing that, that, that he's trying to say maybe in this conversation is making sure that the differentiation is actually an indication of quality versus 
oh well, I want you to perceive this as as good or better than what you what you what you've had in the past, just because I said it was house made or you know like perfect like if we were to say he's he was saying he's saying like yeah, and I get what he was saying yeah. too. It's like house made doesn't automatically mean better. Correct. It doesn't Correct. automatically assume a higher quality, which I agree with. Like, but the same. I, but if you made a like also if you made a crappy ketchup, yeah, like, <laughs> like yeah. Yep. Let's know if it's house made. You know what I mean? Totally, so it's like, totally. it's just, yeah, I get, and I get what he's saying and it shouldn't be assumed that things aren't good. And I agree with him on that point. Mm. It was just a weird, it was, it was a little odd. It was, it was a little, for me at least. Sure. And it, like I said, it's nothing serious. Like it's nothing like, but it was just weird. It was yep, just like, yep. I get it. Just like, I get it. I don't know. Like if restaurants are trying really hard to like, I, like if you're a restaurant owner in 2023, you're trying really 100%. hard to get anything to work. And so, yeah, I don't know. hundred percent. All right. Uh, my last story that I had here uh, was in relation to something that I've just been like following closely from a from a distance. Yeah, and and I actually had the opportunity to speak with one of the team members at Blackbird. So people have heard me talk about in the Repertoire newsletter, in the Repertoire podcast about Blackbird, which is Ben Leventhal's company. So Ben Leventhal was the founder of Resi. If anybody's ever used that re- reservation platform, Resi got acquired by American Express. And then Ben Leventhal had this windfall where he was you know, afforded the opportunity to now work on something else. And he is just super hyper bullish on combining the Web3 world with restaurants, specifically target around loyalty. And so the way that it works is that you actually have, you know, the ability to have what's called fly tokens. So it is, you know, a combination of NFTs and crypto that you have on your phone. And then when you go to your favorite restaurant, the ones that they typically use in the the advertisements is our pizza places. And so if you go to your local pizza place two times a week, their kind of ethos and philosophy is you as the consumer should be inspired to frequent that place, but you should also be rewarded for that frequency. And I think that is such a missing link in restaurant business and and restaurant um, patron culture is the idea of like actual trackable loyalty. Because if you and I rate, you know, we look at the the average tenure of a person at a restaurant, it's like, it's not very long. Like it's like, you might have the kind of like GM of the restaurant might stick around for, you know, several years. But like, if you have a captain or a Psalm that you particularly really like at your place, it's like when they leave, your loyalty status basically leaves, right? Because you've been going to this restaurant with, you know, if you and I go to that restaurant in Chicago that we went to for lunch and we have our server that we really like, and we happen to, you know, have a particular relationship with that person and we're getting hooked up we're getting the perks from the kitchen the extra dishes the you know free cocktails or whatever it's like how does that get reflected in a rest like when it's a spit in the hand handshake you know like free desserts you know it doesn't get reflected on the inventory side of things it's no wonder that you're experiencing some of these like poorly managed businesses that are restaurants where it's like it's beneficial from a customer retention standpoint to keep this person coming back and keep bringing their friends and their family into the into the space because we're treating them so well but Ben, I would argue, and I haven't heard him explicitly say this, but it's like, if you could track this in a way where we can actually point to the fact that when you get your 10 visits, when you visit the restaurant five times, after you order 16 pizzas, we're giving you, you know, extra whatever it is, that actually is something that we can show on a PL. Like we can show that on a dashboard and we can actually show the benefit of having this integration, giving people that sense of ownership. I mean, like if you pull out like one of the credit cards in my wallet here, it shows like member since 2019 or whatever it is, right? Like there's something to, and, and, and there's there's been studies on this where American Express has shown by printing that on the credit card, we increase the brand affinity with the people who use our products. 
over and over and over again. And they keep coming back. And, and, and like, how do you put a price on that? And I think we live, we're living through a time when the technology has finally caught up to the behavior that is, you know, the the NFC capability of your phone to be able to like, you go in and there's a thing at the host stand and you just tap in and you check in at the restaurant. And it's like, that counts. You know what I mean? And and that can start to build towards, um, you know, I, I hope I'm describing this, you know, adequately. So, you know, f- ask questions if I, I don't have any gaps here, but it's like, yeah, so that's that that I think is like it's it's been so building behind the scenes for them and they've been teasing it and they've been creating media content and they've been just kind of like building this brand up. But I think they're at a kind of a critical mass now where they're launching some really exciting, you know, projects. Like one of them is a uh uh you know, dinner suggestion AI chatbot thing. So you can t- send it a text and you can say, "Hey, my wife and I are interested in going for steak tonight." You know, like we live in Seattle, is there any place that you would recommend? And then it can actually like populate that and and have a conversation with you of, you know, like what what is the information that you're looking for for this dining experience? And then what's so fascinating about it and that I think is the missing key to all of this is the restaurant now has access to that information. Previous to this, it was always like reservation platform data. They didn't really want to, you know, like maybe even share it or like say where you were getting the traffic from. But where I am so fascinated about with this is like, how does this actually create opportunities for food business owners to actually like do a little bit of the stuff that everybody's, you know, touting on Instagram and reading unreasonable hospitality where it's like, oh my God, this is this person's 25th visit and we can prove that it's their 25th visit. And how does that actually impact um, how we can treat them as a regular? And so that's what I'm super fascinated about. I'm super happy to see that they're like, they're, they're building it, but, and it's like out, but they're like, they're testing it small and they're trying to scale it up. And, and again, I've had a conversation with one of the team members. So I have seen a little bit of like under the hood stuff with, with, with Blackbird, but like, I just want the people who are listening to this to be aware of like the benefits of loyalty and technology and giving yourself information that you can make decisions on in your business. Because if you don't have that and you're flying blind and you're just giving shit away for free and you're just saying, oh, this is going to work out, like maybe there is a little bit of like karmic benefit that you're going to experience. But if you could actually genuinely like outsource that or give your team the ability to like, hey, this person's literally been here 50 times. Like I want to do something special for them. Oh my goodness. Like, like how does that give longevity to businesses so that we don't have to see these like places? I don't know if you saw that story in Chicago where it's like that, that Boca giant ass restaurant closed in 10 months. Like it was a 300 seat place that closed after 10 months. Like how could they have benefited from, you know, like a little bit of loyalty from some of, some of the people who paid them a visit on the first time. So yeah. Curious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. This is the story that I probably had the least amount of time to research. But I did look into, um, I was actually like looking before this podcast. So today, October 4th, date of recording, 2023, uh, Julia Moskin from the New York Times, um, you know, shared that they, I guess they announced today that they have raised over $24 million um, and that they're expanding to San Francisco and LA out of New York. So just an expansion announcement even today. So really perfect timing on us talking about this. Do you want to state that I've never used the product? So, and I don't know how, Me neither. I don't know backend pricing. I don't know backend costs for restaurants, but on surface, it's a great idea. I mean, you look at Ben Leventhal, he helps, you know, found Eater. He then helps find, found Rezi, he's co-founder of Resi. He's going on to this. So his track record speaks volumes in the food and business space, at least from a business operator perspective. Um, I think it's very fascinating that, you know, they give the example in one of the, in the New York Times article I read that one of the restaurants, you know, they installed chips in the, tables of restaurants and so when a diner just sets their phone on the table it automatically alerts the person 
or the restaurant to it. So it's almost like native and intuitive where if, if a person forgets to even share that they're dining at your restaurant, you can just have a trip reading your customers' phones um, and telling you, hey, like they're here. So I do think it's fascinating. Um, I wonder how, you know, thinking about that, I wonder how that goes into privacy and whatnot. And you have to opt into that, obviously, on their site. But um, yeah, I think it's very fascinating. I think it's really, like you said, especially for independent restaurants, it's such a leg up if you're able to capture, this is someone's 18th visit and just being like, hey, I see this is your 18th visit here. Welcome back. You know, in the re- you know restaurants I've worked in, repeat customers and regular customers and keeping notes was so, so paramount to their experience. And it just makes such a difference. So I think it's important. I think, you know, we look at the prevalence of credit cards and credit card point systems and whatnot. It makes perfect sense that an American consumer would want these things. And it makes sense that they would work out. I'm interested to see the cost to restaurants, the cost to adapt, I think is probably the biggest hurdle for some. I don't know what the cost is, but that would probably be my number one hurdle is if more independent restaurants aren't using it, why? Maybe it's cost. And I'm interested to see the adaptation because you need people to actually download the app. But if they've been able to expand in New York and LA and San Francisco, I do think it's something that will be adaptive, at least in the major food cities. So I'm excited for it. I'm interested to see how it plays out and if it has a net positive for restaurants. Well, I'm yeah, just curious how it, it changes the incentives from the sense of like specific use cases like the one that I called out. So I send the text message and I say my wife and I are looking for a steakhouse. How does the result how do the results get delivered? Right? It does that become this very interesting pay to play thing where, you know, you know, Blackbird isn't charging the consumer, it's not charging the restaurant, but if you want to be featured as part of the chatbot recommendations, here's something you can pay for. And yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, does that actually, you know, uh, pigeonhole people or silo or create this kind of like, um, you know, what, what is the, um, oh my God, what is the, the, the thing where it's, it's a power law, right? Where, where the certain restaurants who happen to have the loyalty and they happen to be like, it, 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 it does a 99 percent to one percent you know split where certain restaurants are getting all the business and all the loyalty because they're able to afford the placement on you know and they're they have the infrastructure built in but i i you know part of me says like technology does actually democratize a lot of this stuff for people and so if you can get to a place where you are you know rewarding your customers well and you're inspiring them to come back and you have the reward set up in a in a thoughtful way and you're delivering on these experiences in person, it's like net net, I think that this is going to benefit people. And that's why I, I just keep beating this drum and I keep looking at being so excited about it because the thing that I actually sent to the person that I talked with at Blackbird was I think a podcast that I did, a, a solo podcast in like 2018 or 2019. This was even before COVID where I was talking about like the ability to go into a restaurant and you could scan in and then that would notify the chef de cuisine or the person who's running the past to say like, hey, someone just arrived who is like, has a vegan allergy, like, they are a vegan diner you know so like oh my goodness like that lead time anybody who works a line knows like that is crucial like if you have 25 minutes before the person even you know like sits down or orders to come up with something as opposed to oh my god we got the ticket in and i don't happen to have anything out of place to prep for this person it's like that causes a, a, a huge thing or the ability for the front of house person not to have to scramble, but you can actually greet their table with a glass of champagne if you're working at like a place that's on the particularly high end or, you know, oh, my goodness, this these people, um, they last time they dined, the 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 gentleman proposed, you know, what I mean, like, oh, my goodness, like like that information is it it, it needs to be technologically enabled 
because with turnover, with, you know, like just the number, the amount of information that our human brains can hold, the expectation that that will just rest on somebody's shoulders. Like, I don't care if you're a Will Gadara type person, like it should be technology that's helping us with that, not just resting on the shoulders of, of humans. So yeah, another, excited to see where it goes. Another great thing, like, hey, customer coming in that just sat down has a severe shellfish allergy. Let's get the space yes. we're going to prepare our foods in ready to go. Um, totally. 100%. I think 100%. Th and then where I went with that podcast episode mm. was basically like, okay, uh, this was before QR codes were a thing, but I was like, if you could scan your phone and you could see what's on the menu and it could be this dynamically changing menu where, where like, obviously this is a thing now, but like, you have to remember like pre COVID for people that have just come into this industry, like I was the guy at the restaurant who was printing menus every day yeah. because we would like run out of langoustine and we had to change to scallop. And it's like, oh my goodness, now I had to pr reprint all 18 menus that are like out in the restaurant right now. And that is such a, you know, administrative burden that is like causing paper waste. That is just like a time, you know, like ball ache to like have to go down to the computer, you yeah. know, like change the word document, make sure everything is aligned, do a test print, make sure it looks good. You know, like I, we had, we did our, our menus in two languages. So I would often have to get like my stuff stuff proofread and it was like oh my god you could just scan in read the menu you could tap in what you wanted to order and then when you're ready to order then you could have a server come over to your table and say something to the effect of they'd give the spiel they ask you know like these are the specials tonight these are my recommendations do you guys are you guys going to be drinking wine tonight is there like i'm not saying remove the hospitality i'm saying have the technology do the thing that like technology can do best it can increase and it, then yeah. have the humans do yeah have the humans do like their highest good and then ultimately, like, it's a better experience all around because restaurants are making more money, guests are happier, and kitchen teams are ultimately more effective because there's less, like, game of telephone. Oh, my God, I forgot to write down that they wanted their steak cooked rare instead of medium well. You know, like, whatever the specific is. And so that's where I get excited about it, and that's why I'm keeping an eye on it. Last thought on that for me. One, I'm interested to see, like you said, the democratization. I would hate for it to become a platform where it's pay-to-play in, like, the most the, – the yeah. restaurants – like it almost makes more sense that it needs to be more community-based, what's higher, higher reviewed and this, or a blend of both maybe. But but two, I would say, because when you sent this link to me, the first thing that happened is I saw NFT and I was like, oh gosh, what is this? But then I looked into it. Immediate eye roll. And I yeah. really think they got to be careful with that. I, I would remove NFT from every single whatever, like marketing, like I would get out of that. For me, just because, I mean, for me personally, I've never, I don't own any NFTs. I never really got into the Web3. And I and I think there is a lot of usefulness and functionality in Web three, but I think NFT that word or that whatever you know the acronym is not currently. Kind of, it's not. I don't know. I, for me, I just don't. I think they got to get away from the saying NFT. I mean, you got to be careful with that, though, man. Like, I I mean, this leads into the next story. I would assume for you, which is like the latest controversy from Mr. Beast was around a platform that he supported in a he did an ad slot in one of his videos where the the company was using web3 and nft technology for the product that they were ultimately trying to sell i think it was like tickets to a creator thing like it was an event but the tickets that they were giving were nfts like they were they were on the blockchain and they didn't say the word nft in any of the marketing it was just based on Web3 technology so that, again, you could have people's information, you could put it in a wallet, you could use it as a flex to people, you could you know, show that, oh, hey, I was here last year. Like A lot of the benefits that NFTs offer 
And then all the backlash happened because everybody was like, oh my God, you were like selling an NFT without calling it an NFT. And again, we've talked about brand a couple times in this conversation, but I think NFT, similar to Housemade, has, you know, a lot of shitty versions of it and a lot of like really practical and like genuine and positive versions of it. And I think it's just suffering through a season of, you know, like negative branding more so than like, oh, we need to slap this label on where everybody needs to be aware every single time they see those three letters. Definitely, so. definitely. Um, I'll lead you in. I'll lead you into a Mr. Beast conversation. Yeah. We don't got to spend too much time on it. Um, that, but, and I, I had done a podcast on this. It's actually, I think, my last solo podcast on the Mr. Beast fiasco where he's stealing virtual dining concepts for basically like misrepresentation of his personality and brand. And they're suing him back for basically breach of contract. They're like going back on it. Um, I'm going to set it. I'll put links to both uh, you know, the Washington Post uh, reporting on it. I also want to share a link to Legal Eagle. He's a, a YouTuber I really enjoy watching. He does a lot of legal, like, and I know it sounds boring, but he actually does an excellent job on legal content. And he actually has a whole video on this. Um, so for me, I've gone kind of gone into my thoughts on it. Uh, but basically, I would love to hear your thoughts. And I know this is going to be cross-shared. So if you want to share the podcast I did, I can share brief thoughts. But I'd love to hear more so you on your thoughts on this, the idea of a, a media personality getting into the restaurant space, the restaurant's not being up to snuff with everything going on. And just the, the harsh reality that restaurant work is really freaking hard. And that even if you're like a big celebrity, it's not easy. And all like, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, that's kind of my takeaway yeah. is like restaurants are rest, restaurants will restaurant no matter who you are and what you're doing. What are your thoughts on the situation? Yeah, so I will also just kind of like in full transparency of just revealing my biases, I actually work closely with a company out of New York called PopChu, which also does these creator-led food brands. So I help them with a lot of the training content that they produce for the partnerships they do and the nationwide rollouts that they have. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a small, small partner in the company. And, and I say that because it is a particular arena that I feel very like intimately connected with because... It is hard. Like, like these nation, like when we're, when PopChu is launching a concept, there are certain launches where it will go live at 40 nationwide locations, like overnight. And then they'll try to build it up after that. Like it will like, but day one is like 40 locations. That's really, really difficult. If you're going to also say, we're not going to send out individual like PopChu chefs or, or virtual dining concepts chefs to these places to train them, to make sure that quality control is there, to make sure that the stuff that we needed them to order in is in. Like, there's so many complexities to how are we going to package this stuff, right? So, because like, in all reality, that restaurant, if, especially if it's like a, a, you know, a quote unquote cloud kitchen or ghost kitchen, or they have other brands operating out of that space, the reality is like, they probably have other ways that they package chicken wings or fries or burgers, but Mr. Beast is posting on his Instagram that like it's coming in this specific Mr. Beast burger box. And so then you have that line cook who's like, you know, probably just hearing about this thing today, right? If you're a virtual dining concepts and you don't have as much infrastructure put in place and you have gotten this massive like hundreds of millions of impressions advertisement boost from a Mr. Beast type personality. And it's like all, things are going to get missed. Like balls are going to get dropped. And when, to your point, someone like a Mr. Beast doesn't get properly talked through, here are the complications with the restaurants. 
Here are the things that we're doing to mitigate problems down with quality control. Here's how we're streamlining the menu to make sure that there are less moving parts so that, you know, like the, the number of potential breakable pieces of this, you know, geometric puzzle that we're building cannot go wrong. We're, tr we're trying to problem solve for that. And that's where my head goes is like operations is like severely underrated with all of this stuff. Because if we're to kind of construct, you know, like what's needed for a business like this to, to, to be profitable and have longevity and, and deliver, you know, outstanding experiences to customers, it's like you have to have these certain pillars, right? Like you have to have really good product. You have to have operational integrity and infrastructure and excellence. And then you also have to have like marketing. Like you have to have awareness of people coming in and saying, I want to order Mr. Beast Burger tonight instead of going to Shake Shack or McDonald's. And I think if we were to kind of like plot this on like a spider graph, something like a Mr. Beast Burger was so maxed out on the marketing side. It's like there was no shortage of people, you know, going into these places and, and, and ordering this stuff. Um, but it's like all of these other things falling by the wayside because they're, you know, virtual dining concepts might be like trying too hard to onboard too many restaurant partners too fast. It's like things get dropped. And, and, and if you'd not, if you're investing in, oh my goodness, we need to be super hyper profitable and we're going to neglect you know, like re-upping with, I mean, like that's something that we, uh, you know, like I, I don't think I'm revealing too much of the behind the scenes at like what Pop Chew deals with, but it's like, there is a lot of like turnover at restaurants and cloud kitchens and stuff like that. And so it's like what we, you know, constantly are thinking about is like, okay, so we sent training to these restaurants. Now it's like, are we going to have to re-up again with the restaurant again in, in XYZ number of weeks or months to make sure that everybody is like executing on a high level because that's, what's important, right? Like the people, you know, will look at something that is, you know, coming from a celebrity or a creator and it's like, they know that Mr. Beast isn't a chef and he is not like going to like, you know, uh, uh, you know, farms and, and, and sourcing the, the, the cattle himself to dry age it and then grind it and turn into the burger patties. It's like, it's about like, potentially a unique flavor combination that you've never had before. It's about the unboxing experience. It's about the potential rewards on the other side that you might get from like you order from Mr. Beast Burger five times or you spend $150 or something like that and then you get an exclusive Mr. Beast video. Like that's what's cool to me about these creator brands. But I think to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in this conversation, it's like when the product isn't high quality, it's like that ultimately is where the rubber meets the road and where the consumer just like, that's where they'll dip. Like if we're really being real here, it's like, I don't care that I've been subscribed to Mr. Beast for however many years. If I order a burger and it's not good, it's like, you probably have one more shot at me ordering from that place. And then it's like, okay, you know, like I'll, I'll just order, I'll just order Feastables from, from now on. Or, you know, like I'll, I'll maybe just like download the apps or the games that Mr. Beast comes out with, but like, eh, the kind of like, and I think that's where it really comes down to with the lawsuit pieces the defamation, the kind of like destruction to the brand on both sides, because who's going to want to work with virtual dining concepts now? You know, nobody, you know, and, and the same with Mr. Beast. It's like he has basically tainted any sort of effort that he wants to do on like Mr. Beast pizza, Mr. Beast ice cream, you know, like any of these like in-person, you know, not consumer packaged goods products. He's in a bit of a, a hole, you know, so how does he dig himself out of this? And is like, I don't know, like, I guess the only thing that I would be like curious um, to hear, like in a, in a genuine, like, how did they come to the numbers, right? Of like a hundred million dollars is like, that's a lot of money, you know, for, uh, for both parties to be going after one another. But at the same time, you look at the upside, 
of if Mr. Beast Burger was like a knock it out of the park, like like anything else that Mr. Beast does. Um, the it's just the, the the big struggle is like when he's doing all these projects and he's making all these videos and he's flying all over the world and he has all of this stuff. Like, it's the it's the location separation and proximity. You know what I mean? Like like when you're so nationwide and you can only be in one place at a time, you really have to have like trusted people in the places you have to have just like really dialed in i love operations man like it's one of my favorite things in the world and that's why because it's like it's the behind the scenes organization and how it all comes together and how it gets delivered to the customer and how you keep the people like engaged and motivated to like show up every day to 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 make the things it's like that's where great brands get built it's in like the boring blocking and tackling like making sure that we put the right box with the burger is like that that that's important and when it gets lost like this is just in my solo episodes of the podcast i'm so focused on like cautionary tales and that's how i look at this is like what can we learn from this situation so that we can take a look at our businesses and say like hey guys this is why it's important for the quality of the product to be good and for the things that we say that we're going to do on social media for it to match what the customer is going to get because when it doesn't happen this is what we get you know, and that, how can that impact and, and empower and, and, and make it possible for people to build really successful empires? So again, that's, that's my biased rant on, on this situation. Solid rant. I agree with like everything you said. And I, like I said, I've talked about the pod before, but I'll just leave it too with, you know, I think it's the issue with ghost kitchens. You know, there's a lot of problems with ghost kitchens, a lot of problems with yes. customer perception, a lot of problems with um, ownership perception. Uh, but at the end of the day, that lack of quality, it's its stunning. You know, there's a reason why, like, not many people have great restaurants. Not just celebrities, but people in general. It's very hard to expand and grow groups because hard. food is hard. So I do think it's um, I do think it's interesting. Uh, final, I guess, thoughts. I know you start wrapping this up. I can't believe we're already an hour and 20 in. Um, any um, Anything on your mind, like, quick little bites before we head out? Anything that you're excited about for end of 2023, 2024? Anything going on that you want to share? I mean, those are the big two things that I kind of I kind of touched on them in the beginning of the episode. Uh, have had some you know issues with with family. Nothing you know negative with like my my wife and my baby, my my son that was just born like two months ago. So everything's fine there. You know, like all is well there. Um, it's another parent's health. Uh, you know, taking a turn for the worse, and so that's just unfortunately like gotten in the way of yeah. Thanks, man. Of 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 me, just like I had, I think August first or September first was when I wanted to get season two of the bear out. That is still on my docket. That is still on my plate. I have, I think, like at least a dozen this place called episodes where I kind of go out to eat and I provide my thoughts on like the meal that I had that those are shot. I just need to edit them. Um, I was hoping today's October 4th, as Ray said, but October 1st was supposed to be when the version three of total station nomination dropped, but it's like that got pushed out. So I'm hoping November 1st is when that ends up getting, you know, kind of like released. And so those are all the things of like, Things that I'm excited about from a like organic content perspective of like I have also some podcast recordings that I have that are, that are like fantastic interviews with some great hospitality professionals. So I guess, you know, I appreciate like I have one of the best audiences in the world, I would argue, because like the the grace that folks give me when I need to take a break is phenomenal. And it, it truly helps me, you know, like make sure that I can just come back in full force. Um 
And then also just make sure that like other things in my life aren't, you know, like uh, falling by the wayside. Um, and so those are all things that I'm just like more than amped to like publish and get out into the, the, the world and have, have people get like hands on either practical, productive progress from whether it's a total station nomination student or just like genuine entertainment value from like sitting there and watching me break down all 10 episodes of season two of the bear. So like, that's what's, uh, you know, like I'm stoked to like get back into the editing timeline, get back on camera. Like, thank you for, you know, like pushing me to like hop on today and, and jam on this. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience too. Um, but yeah, just like, uh, there's a reason why, um, I think the first scene of season two of the bear is like so impactful uh, and it hit me so hard. And I don't know if you remember it, but it's, it's literally Marcus in like uh, a room with it, with his mom on like a stretcher. Um, and it's like, that's been my 2023. It's just like time in and out of the hospital. Um, and it's, 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 it, it's hard, but at the same time, it's like, it's one of those things where you just don't, you know, for anybody listening, just like, don't take your health for granted. Like it truly is, you know, uh, the that's the quote right like the 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 healthy man has a, a thousand desires the sick man only has one desire and 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 just keeping that in the back of your head of like um if you if you're neglecting either your own health or even you know second order of that is like time with your family uh you know it's it grim reaper is coming for all of us i know you have memento mori tattooed i think and so you know like just keeping that all you know uh top of mind is is um you know what I'm thinking about, and then also just like be picking something where you can continue to to play. I think is like I don't feel the pressure to like jump back in and keep making content because I am gonna be making content for another two decades. You know, so like if I need to take like this year has been very low productive wise for me, and I think like with all the shit that's happening in my personal life, um, you know, I think it's warranted. But at the same time, it's like I'm not letting it beat myself up because I want to, I'm going to be doing this for forever, basically. And so, you know, I think if you don't have that, you know, like, and you're feeling what, whether it's burnout or frustration with your output or whatever, um, you know, like maybe there's something there and I'm trying to like turn this into a productive thing versus a therapy session for the listener. Um, but that's, that's all been kind of helpful for me in this, in this whole process in this swirl. Um, so yeah, like stay tuned, subscribe if you're not subscribed. Um, what do you got? What, what What's top of mind for you? What are you excited about? First off, hoping the best for you and your fam and this whole situation. Man. Yeah, I mean, I lost yeah, yeah. my grandmother last, almost a, a year to this month. I remember. Last year, yeah, and yeah. that was pretty tough. And I'll, I'll never forget, like, I made a couple crucial decisions where I had the opportunity to go home or I had the opportunity to stay working. And the the at the time, leaving work to go to an 80th, her 80th birthday and leaving go, to go see her for 12, like 12, like 18 hours I was gone for like such a big sacrifice to the restaurant, to my career and to my, well, what it means to be a chef and how could, you know, I, I ended up going, but it was like, oh gosh, at what cost am I like, and I don't work for that. I don't work for the restaurant anymore and I'm not even restaurants anymore. But at the end of the day, like being there for my grandmother on her 80th meant, means more to me in my memory than ever staying. And I, I could have given two shits as to what, what happened that day. I don't really even remember what was happening 100%. at that time in the restaurant. And you just don't get like that trumps everything to me, at least. And yeah. I know there's yeah. a lot of people that, you know, might not be able to afford to do that. There's people in different situations. But for me, I've always made it a point that like I'm going to spend time with fam in certain ways. And I've missed holidays and I've done stuff like that where I miss birthdays and whatnot, but those really, really crucial moments, you, you got to be there. And so, um, 
I definitely feel for you on that. I just took I just took the month of September off of content creation for Line Cook Thoughts. I did more, I still did writing. I still did newsletters. Also needed a break. Just felt like a good time, a good opportunity. Things were starting to get a little overwhelming and feeling a little stale because of it. So um, it was nice to get a break back. But I do feel refreshed on that. Um, just excited for cold weather, man. I feel like I do my best work in the cold weather. I live near Chicago, Same. and so I feel like the fall, winter, and then early spring is when I feel most content of being home, doing content, doing like cooking, all that stuff. So. Just excited for cold weather. It's, it's my time of year. It's always been my time of year to feel like that. I, I, re, I, I like I like good weather, but I'm not really a big fan of heat. Um, and for me, just like being the fall just energizes me. I don't like nothing else does. So I just feel really good about content creation, about personal life, about work. Um, and yeah, so just been uh, doing all that. So good for you, man. And I hope that you know. Kudos to you for just being open with the fact that you're like hey i took a break i i wanted to take a break it's not like i you know pushed myself so far that i was just like i had to leave for you know putting myself in the hospital or like like any sort of extraneous circumstances to like i i just think that us you know i i i i shared in a post on instagram when i when my mom passed where i was like i'm not being transparent enough you know with my audience uh, with with like what i put out there on the internet where it was like causing me a lot of angst and i don't know if anybody i i'm sure there's people who are listening who empathize with the fact of like oh well you know like i'm strong enough to just like grit through this and and it's going to you know it's going to be seen as complaining if i like come out and at least that's that that was my belief that it was like if i talked about the fact that i i wasn't uh, uploading because I was like, you know, having to fly to, to visit a, a sick parent, it was like, that would be a negative, you know, seen as weakness or, you know, seen as, you know, like negative. But I think you and I can both, you know, be a testament to the fact that this time is, is just, this is life. Like this is you living life and this is what happens. And, and hoping for anything to be different is just like a fool's errand and just being able to, um, process it in in a in a healthy way is is you know what i applaud you for too and so you know um always a pleasure jamming man and um yeah i guess if anybody wants to um follow along with me i am gonna have everything linked up in the description uh at least of my my show ray i'll send you probably some you know places to send people please do the same with me i know that you have a great newsletter that you've been kind of like beating the drum on um that i would love to send people to as well um but yeah anything else that you want to leave people with <sighs> anything else um i would just say that you know like hope life is going well hope things are going well and just yep. um yeah i think a lesson from today is take breaks when needed be honest with yourself and um just yeah there's life life goes we i feel like at least for me i have moments of creativity and effort and inspiration and then there's times when it's like i just want to sit back and play ps5 and not do anything and be a lazy uh, person. You know, you also, like, I think you and I are both similar in the fact that, like, we have a lot on that our audience doesn't know that we have on. No. Like, the writing that you do, the, like, the involvement with company, you know, the startups that I have, you know, like, mm -hmm. the, the, the course work that I do behind the scenes or mm -hmm. the coaching that I do with, like, chefs. You know, I just think that there's a lot that, like, people don't see the work that we are putting in in our like main projects, quote unquote, with like, whether it's my Justin Connor YouTube channel or the podcast for me or like your podcast or your Instagram page. It's like, there's so much stuff that's happening outside of those things that I think, you know, I, I've, I've actually had to come to terms with, with myself and being like, look at how distracted you are. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like I, I think about myself that, and that sometimes of like, it's no wonder that you feel all this pressure. And so I think coming out of, 
a lot of this loss, I, I'm thinking a lot about focus and how I can just like dedicate myself to the things that I know are important and that move the needle and that, you know, are genuinely pushing me towards the things that I want mm -hmm. in my career and my life and, and focusing more on those so that I don't have to feel like eight balls drop when I stop juggling. You know yeah. what I mean? I feel it. I mean, like so. yeah, I sit back a lot and I, I have to tell myself you're doing enough. Like I have a full-time job. Yeah. I do this, I do writing, yeah. uh, I do podcasts, yep. Instagram. I'm yep. taking a food science, like, like certific certification program, like jujitsu totally. life in general. Yep. Like, yeah, it all, it all adds up. And I still am trying to find time to play Baldur's Gate 3. So um, <laughs> I love it. It all makes, it. It all makes time uh, go by. But um, cool, man. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. And thanks as always. Likewise. And there you have the podcast with Justin Connor. Like I said, there's a lot of links in description in the description, a lot of links to what we were talking about, what we were saying. So please check that out in the description below. Um, as always, please leave a review if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to Justin for coming on the show. Please check him out and all his work. He is an excellent content creator. He's been on many times. We've had many podcast conversations, so go check those out. But um, yeah, just an all around guy that I you know look up to and appreciate and just really, really enjoy having him on. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you on the next Line Thoughts podcast. Thank you.